0: you are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to
1: ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 414. Don't work on your job, work on yourself. Make yourself much more valuable to the marketplace. Jim Rohn. (coughs) audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now guys, today is a special edition of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. You will get your normal weekly episode tomorrow on Friday, but I wanted to release this one today because it's a bonus. I wanted to give you a little extra something something during this crazy time that we're living in. Now, I know a lot of you have watched uh, Disney Plus's show uh, The Mandalorian, which is a Star Wars, the first Star Wars television series, and it was one of the biggest shows of last year, and the new season just started last week. I am a tremendous fan, as many of you already know, but what I was really interested in was the virtual production techniques and technologies that they use and implemented to make a giant, very big budget-looking show on a budget. Now, mind you, on a budget is relative in the Star Wars universe, but let's just say that they were able to put together hours and hours of content for less budget than you would have to spend on a standard Star Wars movie. Now, when I looked at all of this, obviously there's a lot of talk about how this might help filmmakers and production companies Uh, deal with the coronavirus, uh, doesn't need a lot of people, you could be very enclosed, very bubble-like, and you could have a lot of production value and you can save a lot of money because you don't have to do as as much green screening and visual effects costs. But I was like, this is all great. And again, you know, just like when the T-Rex showed up in Jurassic Park in 1993, that's really great. But how is that going to help us as independent filmmakers? Well, today's guest is someone who is going to help you get access to this insane technology on a budget. Now today, we are speaking to Rene Amador from AR Wall. And AR Wall is one of the industry leaders in this virtual production technology. And when I saw their newest product, my mouth dropped to the floor. They have created the AR Wall Home Studio which allows you, as an independent creator, as an independent filmmaker, to use same or similar technologies to what they used on The Mandalorian at a very, very affordable price. We're talking less than the cost of a RED camera. Now, Renee and I get into all of the technology, how independent filmmakers can use it, what it would do for your production value, how do you get those amazing backgrounds that you're going to be able to move left and right. I mean, it's is—it's just an insane, insane world that we're walking into. We are that much closer to literally just shooting on a holodeck from Star Trek, which is basically an entire room that looks and it feels almost like a real room, but it's all holographic. We are very we're just getting closer and closer to eventually being able to shoot on the holodeck. And this technology is that next step forward. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Renee Almador. I'd like to welcome to the show Renee Amador. How are you doing, Renee?
0: I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me, Alex.
1: Oh brother, man. Thank you for being on the show, man. I, I truly appreciate it. I am I have to say before we get started, man, I am such a fan of what you guys are doing at AR. It's uh-huh it's mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing but we're gonna get into all of that uh, in this episode but, but before we start I have to tell the story because we were talking about it before we got on yes uh, and please tell <clears throat> please tell the audience uh, how we know each other
0: <laughs> yeah so I mean I think you reached out um, because we had some big press recently we came out with some big announcement recently um, and uh, and just this morning, I was thinking, Alex Ferrari is such a familiar name. It's the type of name you don't forget, right? So I was thinking, this sounds so familiar. I went back to my personal email um, uh, from like you know over ten years ago and went and looked and put your name in and found I'm I've been on your newsletter since about two thousand seven for <laughs> uh, Enigma Factory, and I think it was originally because you you were kicking butt. On the DVX one hundred A and then the HVX two hundred, and you were one of the few people that was doing visual effects intensive stuff on those cameras. So we were we wanted to use those same cameras. So we were following you uh, to see what you were up to, what your workflows were, <laughs> and then you came up with a bunch of uh, like workshops too. And I think I actually might have purchased them. Yeah. Um, but I think the the original way that I that I heard about you is we we had a. Um, we had a couple of films go to Dragon Con 2007, and mm-hmm. your uh, your shorts were there as well. Right. So the, uh, once I saw those, and I think we were actually in contention against each other. It was like <laughs> you won first prize, I won second prize. And oh, wow, that. that's yeah, awesome! Isn't that wild? Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's how I first learned about. It. I was like, Who the hell is this guy? You know, <laughs> why <laughs> this guy? That's why me. did he,
1: why did he get first place? What the hell's going on here? I gotta watch these things.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah, so that was, I have an email here. First email from your newsletter, June 2007. What a blast from the past. Um, I,
1: I was, flo- when you told me this story, I was absolutely floored because I, first of all, I can't believe you have email from 2007. So that alone, there's issues that you need to work out. But, um, <laughs> but that, and then you read the email, it was about my second film, Sin. And I'll, you know, I said, hey guys, yeah. I want to let you know about my new film. It is so funny how that little short film I did in 2005, people still, Talk to me about it, and still reach it. Like right. when I, and it happens more often than you would think. Like I, the last thing I thought of when I when I rang in to do our interview today is you were gonna go, hey dude, I like I remember broken. Like I just didn't.
0: It's <laughs> <That's laughs> hilarious. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's pretty pretty
1: amazing, man. But uh, thank you for sharing that uh, insane, uh,
0: okay. <laughs> insane. So I'm a stuff. fan. Just to be clear, I'm a fan. <laughs> And I'm here, you know, I'm here just to interview you, basically.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll come on your podcast or anytime you like the AR podcast, anytime you want. Um, So how did you uh, get into the film business in the first place, sir?
0: Yeah. um, So uh, I think originally my dad, my dad uh, wanted to be a filmmaker way back in the 70s and ended up going into computer engineering instead. Um, So he... (laughs) He was uh, one of the top software engineers uh, for the defense industry for about 40 years. Um, but through that entire period, from uh, even a, a young age, uh, that spirit of filmmaking was still inside him. And he definitely you know, imbued my entire upbringing, my, my, uh, my uh, media culture with that love of cinema. So you know, I grew up, you know, before the age of 10, watching Fellini and Kurosawa and all these intense films. Um, just really just thinking like, okay, this is just, this is culture. This is what art is, uh, not really knowing that, um, like it's pretty unusual to uh, get that type of, um, education as a young child in cinema. So I, at about the age of 10, um, I, you know, made a pretty, uh, determined statement to my family, like, I am going to be a filmmaker, I'm going to be a director, you know, screenwriter, uh, and make these uh, projects, do some TV, do some film, you know, just do what I can. And and really, uh, I think it was a couple films uh, that did that for me. Obviously, um, uh, I think like science fiction films were pretty big for me, Star Wars. Uh, but then there was one in particular, which people may laugh at, which is Dune, the David Lynch movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I happened to uh, own that um, because my my dad was a pretty big David Lynch fan. And I don't think I'd seen any of his other films. It's the first film I'd seen of his. And when I – just in the first 10 minutes of that film, you see the set design and the production design that that they brought to that <sighs> project. and And you just think – we'll
1: be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
0: Somebody's job is to get paid to make those sets. And and just to think what, how much fun and how much amazing creativity goes into that type of collaboration, I thought that that's something that I have to be involved with because you know, as a kid you look out into the rest of the world and you're like who else is approaching that level of creativity and that level of storytelling and imagination? Um, It's not really something that you see uh, out in the world. So film for me was that moment where I realized dream and imagination and reality and career could all come together into one package and really uh, create something special. So that, that's how I really got started. And then, um, uh, just, just kind of thinking of that mentality, uh, uh, at a very young age. And then, um, I made my first project, obviously, uh, uh for, for us, for a high school, you know, trying to, uh, get rid of, uh, doing homework. I so, did that too. I
1: did that too. It was yeah, awesome.
0: So <laughs> we make a video. We made a video. Um, I think my first video was called Derangado. It had to be in Spanish because it was for Spanish class. And, um, it was just, uh, it was basically, um, kind of like a lost highway ripoff. Uh, like some weird, surreal thing where people were, you know, in dark lighting, looking intense, that type of thing. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And, and one of the things that happened when I was making it is literally everyone said to me, hey, you've done this before. Like I can tell that you've done this before. And I would be like, nope, never done it before. Just watched every single behind the scenes, video, you know, DVD uh, uh, thing that I could get my hands on. Uh, So that's how I got started, and then in senior year of high school, I made a very popular video called Real Ultimate Power, the official ninja movie, which was based on their website called realultimatepower.net, which was very popular at the time. And that got over 3 million views, that video. Uh, This was in 2002 in high school. So I personally set up the...
1: How'd you get the views? Where the were web? those views? Because YouTube wasn't even around yet.
0: You're, you're correct. So there's two things. One is it's an adaptation of a website into a video, which is something that hadn't really been done before. Um, and in fact, uh, we found out that the only other project to have done it at the time was something called Undercover Brother, um, yeah. which I think you may remember. That yeah. was actually a website to begin with. Oh. So we were in this, we were part of this little wave in the beginning of viral content, we're basically we're adapting websites into videos. So we, we got linked on the front page of that website and that's where a Exploded. lot of the viewership came from. However, there's a, there's another component of it, which is that I was very active in 4chan in the something awful.com forums, which were kind of the precursor to like Reddit and, um, and like meme groups and that type of stuff. And actually in the something awful, uh, uh, forum groups uh, with B-Y-O-B and F-Y-A-D, I can't say what those mean on air, but <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they're acronyms. People who know something awful will know these. I was a regular on these, and and being able to put the content out, you know, I would be making memes, shareables. This was 10 years before, you know, eight people even knew what a meme or shareable was. What? I would be making them for the film, for my short film. Putting them on the website, being like, look at how ridiculous this is, putting a link to the video. And that's, that's how we made it. Happen. That's how we reached millions of views. And that was such a new strategy at that time. And what's funny is um, 10 years later, I was doing exactly that for Fox, um, which is so weird. <laughs> I was doing exactly that for Fox, actually for American Idol. Um, for one of the top uh, media brands in the world I was doing that uh, meme and shareables creation with. So going full circle, but that's really how I got started, um, doing my own distribution, setting up the web hosting myself, and then uh, back when you had to think about that type of stuff. And then um, that project was extremely absurdist. It was very similar, I would say. It was inspired kind of like by um, the Christopher Guest movies, Waiting for Guffman, yeah. um, that type of stuff. I'm a really big fan of Christopher Guest. Uh, mm-hmm. um, just the the whole – that insane improv energy where anything can happen and that sensation of awkwardness. I kind of see him almost as the spiritual successor to uh, Fellini and the way that he casts off uh, oddball characters that look odd and just give you a certain – feeling and then they go off and do something that's, um, highly unusual or just highly te- uh, tense. And it gives you such an in- intense narrative feeling in those moments. I really enjoy that, that type of stuff. So if you, if you know that about me, a lot will make sense about my films because uh, <laughs> they tend to have an absurdist, um, really irreverent and a kind of a screwball, uh, sensibility to them. Yeah.
1: Well, that's that's awesome, and yeah, it, I did the same meme situation in two thousand four, two thousand five, when I did my short films. It was, I mean, those that was such the Wild Wild West, man. It was such yeah. the Wild Wild West back then, and and I, it's hard for people to understand that you know you couldn't just put your film up, like you literally couldn't. There was no YouTube, and even YouTube sucked in two thousand five, like the quality. Yeah. Was atrocious. Um, yeah. it, it's the technology just wasn't there, let alone to stream. You know, you know what I did with Sin that second film. The, 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 your email, I actually, I actually wanted to sell it on iTunes, but couldn't because there was no technology to get it up on iTunes. So what I did was, I would sell the download of an iTunes file, the mv V four file or whatever the iTunes format is. I would sell it on my on my website. And then they would click dollar ninety nine to rent it, and then they would double click on it; it would open up in the iTunes app.
0: Back that's then, genius. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think you know, remembering back up to that time and how this how difficult distribution was online. Um, that that's a genius move. I used um, this this is really gonna date it. I used something called Real Player.
1: Oh, I remember um, Real Player, that, Of course, allowed, I mean, yeah, yeah, the web, the web, the um, the uh, Flash. It was Flash based, right? Or close I mean, to I'm, no, not, quite I'm sure. not sure if it was flash but was I know JavaScript real player.
0: Or, um, yeah, something um, like that. Yeah. It was JavaScript, possibly Flash, or you know, Shockwave, or whatever the hell they oh, had. Shockwave. Kind of Ooh. <laughs> Remember Dreamweaver. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, you would have to build the actual infrastructure of distribution um, yeah. at that time, and and it was such a pain in the butt. And when YouTube came along, really the original uh, people not, might not realize it's the original pitch that YouTube had wasn't even as a uh, uh, video destination it was a, as a pitch to video creators hey we'll make it super easy for you to get your video online then you can embed it wherever you want you know mm-hmm. you're there everywhere it wasn't meant to be a destination site it was only later when people started linking directly to the YouTube page instead of their own website with the video embedded that it started to become a video destination site and that was very interesting happen in real time
1: no it's sure. it's crazy and i also by the way i have i think and i want someone to tell me differently but i think i have the first filmmaking tutorials up on youtube
0: i, I wouldn't be surprised because it was oh five I, I, yeah i I think i bought them and i remember <laughs> it being i remember it being unusual like i hadn't heard like i'm trying to think like it, it was almost it almost felt infomercially you know like um you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, learn how to meditate or something, you know, you would see that kind of stuff on TV, but you didn't, you know, it's not like now where, you know, masterclass and, you know, learn how to cook and learn how to this or that, or, um, it wasn't a common thing. And the fact that you were doing something on media creation was pretty unusual because uh, at that point it had just become viable to do, to do like fully digital, uh, media. And then you were, you had realized, oh man, I like, I can, you know, do screen caps and I can do. All sorts of stuff. And so you were showing the entire process in an interesting way that I don't think had been done before. Like, where did you learn how to do that? Because I I don't think there's like post guy extras.
1: I was a a post guy, dude. I was I was editing since 96. So I just kind of understood the, the post production aspect of things. And then I have a marketing head. And mm. that's how it kind of all combined that with everything else I've done in my life. It kind of came up and, and started doing it. I always just figured out like, and even then I still didn't get it because I left YouTube. I should have stayed. I should have stayed and just kept making. If I would have made tutorials, just kept making tutorial videos, I would own, <laughs> own the filmmaking yeah. tutorial space. <laughs> but I, I, but I'm not, I'm not a teacher. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I don't. I'm a filmmaker. Spielberg didn't do tutorial videos. Why should I? And that was the ego spike speaking. But who knew? No, oh, one knew. No, no one knew. No one. knew. No one knew. Exactly. But what, so uh, so we're here to talk about your company that you've co-founded, AR Wall. First of all, uh, which is if, if I'm if I'm correct about, it's a company that deals with augmented reality. Uh, and, and versions of that. Can you explain to people what augmented reality is?
0: Absolutely, so we call ourselves an ARXR company, which basically means augmented reality and what they call extended reality, or some people call it mixed reality. And basically what this means is we're combining live action elements in real time with CG elements. And it's different from traditional visual effects well, which is entirely a time shifted process where you shoot and then you do the compositing at a later point. Um, so we're we're not um, uh, we're not in that game. We're in the game of capturing it on set live, uh, whether it's a live stream, a live broadcast or live to tape type of scenario where you want to give the impression of a live uh, broadcast. But the whole point is you walk away from set with the final shot. With the final pixel and that's a fundamental shift um in the way that people have been conceiving of virtual production because i think when it comes to film and tv prior to us coming onto the scene most people's heads were at pre-visualization which right. means you know you hire the third floor we work who's worked on star wars and avengers films um one of our one of our sister companies uh, that that we uh love working with um and so you, you have a temporary composite, which isn't even meant to be like a full uh, uh, like fully 100% tracked um, a composite. It's meant to be reminiscent and just to give the the, the filmmakers on set like an idea of what it's going to be like. So that's not Final Pixel. And that's where real-time graphics have been relegated in film and TV for quite, quite some time, about 10 years. Um, when we came on the scene in 2016... There was no solution um, that was fast enough to do um, uh, like the window illusion uh, and camera tracking the way that we did. Um, There was some stuff for experientials. Um, Unreal had something called VR cluster um, and then Barco had developed something uh, for industrial use uh, that used uh, um, uh, goggles with like big ping pong balls on them, that type of thing. Um, but nobody had looked at how do you combine those experiential and industrial tools that were being developed for, um, for commercial purposes um, into the media industry so that you could actually uh, get the CG in a realistic way sutured behind the live action uh, actors and sets. So we, we saw that as our original challenge and we actually accomplished that in 2017 and immediately signed a, a Netflix and NBC Universal project called Night Flyers, which was our first project. Um, And to describe what we're up to here, basically what's happening is if you think of traditional rear projection, you have a giant screen. uh, It's giving the sensation that the actor, the sets are in a location in which they're not actually. So in space or moving or in a forest or whatever the case may be. Uh, The problem with rear projection is as you move, as you transpose the camera, move the position of the camera, you begin to see the static rigidity of the 2D plate behind the actor and set where the where the reprojection screen is and that's because obviously the Illusion of parallax is broken right and the skew is in the skew is not correct. The perspective is not correct So what we realized was with the new real-time Like the new advancements in immersive in VR and AR and that type of stuff that were happening in 2016 there would be an opportunity now to actually track the camera's position as it moved and update the vantage point onto the rear projection plate so that in under, you know, 41 milliseconds, the time that it takes for a shutter to open and close, we can actually update the background dynamically so that it always looks like you're looking into a deep window illusion, like a deep environment on that screen. Um, So it's basically a way to combine traditional rear projection technology with new immersive tracking technology, and that's that's what, what our vision is,
1: so I can only imagine what someone like Stanley Kubrick would do with this uh, if he was alive today because he I mean, he was one of the I mean, rear projection been around forever. Um yeah. but but I think Stanley was one of the first to really take it to a whole other because like, I still remember two thousand one yeah, it's it's flawless. I mean, you can't even tell that it's rear projection, like
0: exactly. It, and it, and actually that that was our thesis statement when we were going out and uh, getting initial clients and getting uh, financing and everything like that is we would show Wizard of Oz, actually. And Mm -hmm. if you, uh, the Wizard of Oz tornado sequence, everybody can kind of picture picture the spatial reality of that tornado and then to sit down with an investor and tell them, look, everything here is rear projection and look how real that looks and we can come back to this perfection in compositing and and this is a proven technique for a hundred years that this is something that that we can do in a successful way and that's really how we got the ball rolling it because I think that was key to to our company's success we didn't come in and say we're the new kids on the block and we've got the new stuff and these are the toys no we did it the opposite we said we have such amazing reverence for the traditional cinematic methods and between, you know basically between 1990 and now is an aberration where everything's green and and <laughs> we, we, need, we need to get right. That's kind of the way that we were pitching it to be serious. like between 1990 and two and 2020, Everything was green for like thirty years, and it was really—it uh, was
1: uh, blue, then green.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's blue. It blue and then green, and that and and we're gonna look back at this moment in history and be like, "What the hell were they thinking?" That's what they were doing before these types of real-time backdrops uh, came on the scene, and they started shooting actual photons again, right? Not not making fake virtual photons to bounce around everywhere. So, um, just kind of thinking about the. The, from a historical perspective, from a legacy perspective, what would be the next technology that comes around? And that's how really that we thought of it. And I think that we've been acknowledged um, in this space as people who, you know, didn't try and come in and, you know, and muscle our way in with some new tech, but really have uh, reverence and respect for, for traditional cinema. And and I think that's, that's, uh, that's what we're all about.
1: So uh, the first time I really... You know when when AR came into my viewpoint i'd heard about it, but again, because of early like even in 2015 2016, 17, it was still very early on and the, and the technology has grown so fast i mean it 's insane how quickly the processing power is is just you know grown that now you 're able to do things like we're doing currently. but the first time I really kind of came into the zeitgeist was Mandalorian. When Mandal- Mandalorian has really put it on the map and, and really, yeah. it, would you agree? Like when, when you saw Mandalorian, it was like,
0: oh, well, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, definitely we, we were having conversations and you know technically we did the first one, um, if with Night Flyers, <laughs> uh, about a year prior uh, to Mandalorian coming out, um, is when we, is when we were doing our work. Um, but, av- but absolutely we, we had such a big splash with this, um, LED backdrop stuff that when people saw Mandalorian and they saw what, what was happening, uh, they got so excited. I mean, we just had an insane rush yeah. of interest <laughs> from everyone in the industry. Most people honestly thought that we had done it because they didn't realize that a second team was capable <laughs> of, of doing it, which is good for us because we got a lot of calls and everything like that. Sure. Um, but that was massive. Um, and it really put this type of real-time technology on the map because you have, you know, a guy like uh, John Favreau backing this, talking about it, gushing right. about it, everything like that, and uh, it makes the it makes the selling process a little bit easier, and it gets us further along on most on most projects than uh, than prior. So it helped a lot. It really um, made people see, like, you know, what I don't need to do a camera test, you know, to see if it's viable anymore. I don't need to see any more footage. Like, I know it's I know it's viable. And now I just need to make sure that I'm working with the right team. So, because we're one of the longest uh, serving teams in this space, um, doing these LED backdrops, we've uh, benefited a lot from the Mandalorians' uh, big uh, surge in interest in the industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I saw some of the behind the scenes of, of also of, um, of what was it, night flyers, uh, I saw some stuff that you were doing the night flyers and some of the, you know, just 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 sitting there watching a, a camera guy move the camera and then the background move with it you know, your mouth drops. You're just like, what? But there's also another big benefit to that is the lighting. You're getting real-time lighting, which you don't get in a green screen. And that is something that you just can't replicate uh, in post. You know, and being a post guy, it's difficult. It's not not difficult. It's it's nearly impossible to do it really well, where now you have reflections. You have lighting. Like if there's a sun out, the sun is hitting you. Uh, if there's exactly. night, little you know, um, night lights hitting you. Night lights are hitting you. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
0: And he, here's the thing. Here's what's funny. You wouldn't know exact. You wouldn't exactly know those benefits unless you'd actually have to go through the green screen compositing process mm-hmm. personally and go. Oh wait, this doesn't work like this thing that should work doesn't isn't working like i need to recreate this entire lighting scheme and lighting conditions or change it you know and fake it or something like that and really until you until you run up to you know what i would call like the dead end of what green screen is capable of there's a certain point which you can't go any further you know without really just you know faking everything um it's at that point that you realize, gosh, there's got to be a, a better way. And you know, myself uh, working as a visual effects compositor uh, for quite some time, um, I think. I think thinking, is this what I'm going to be doing when I'm 65? You know, like, am I going to be sitting here keying out green and spill suppression?
1: Out, yeah, yeah, sure painting
0: so, yeah. out noise, and you know, like, is this is this what I'm going to be doing? And just just having so so much. Um, respect for those artists who in you know in my opinion these these artists who do high level feature film and tv work and do this screen screen compositing these are da vinci level artists that like we as a culture have basically said like you know what just just remove the rock from the background okay just
1: like <laughs> <laughs> right we've, like we've basically like, it's like having it's like having leonardo da vinci like look i know that you can do the sistine chapel but you know just I need that rock killed out. That, that that the wire over there. I need you to get rid of that yeah.
0: wire. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, can you get? <laughs> you're absolutely um, right. That's, you're absolutely that's, right. that's exactly how it feels. And 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 like, and you'll be you'll be hanging around with these visual effects compositors, and you know they'll all be like painters, you know, on their free time. And you know, <laughs> I know these guys. Like, They're amazing, amazing um, work and stuff. And you're going, gosh, okay, is that what we're asking these people to do? And really, just ha- just thinking. Um, something is going to come along and it's going to be able to do this in an automated way. And and what is that what does that look like in realizing that actually has to happen on set while the camera is rolling. If we can get the if we can get a a robotic compositor, you know, to 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 you know, use the wrong term basically, mm-hmm. but make an automated compositor that actually composites the shot before the shutter opens and closes while you're shooting. Then ultimately, um, that's going to be the right moment in, to, in order to complete the composite before it goes into the camera's lens. So uh, that's really how you know back up that entire process all the way onto set, all the way onto set, and even actually before the uh, the frame is exposed. That's uh, that's how we came up with this, and 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 uh, that's was the original conception, just for like from a really basic standpoint, thinking about it that way.
1: So all right, so. We, we see the technologies there and and now you you know you use these these giant led um uh backdrops and and how how i mean what's like do you use projectors? Do you actually use monitors? do you do a combination of do is there like stitching of giant eighty or hundred fifty inch monitors? How are you doing it
0: sure so um it's a technology that was um that most people will be familiar with um for concerts. So you imagine, you know, the big uh, Beyonce concert, she's got those amazing LED screens behind her that are coordinated in motion, you know, motion design, motion graphics with, this, with the tracks and songs and her performance and everything. So it's, it's literally those same companies that are deploying the screens. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, great LED rental companies out there um, that we work with. And uh, the difference is that the, the density, the pixel density of the screens is much tighter. Working for film and TVs because you want to avoid pixelation and moiré right, yeah, uh, and right. those types of issues that go along with it. So let's say you know uh, at a concert you might have a pitch that's like 5.6 millimeter, uh, which is describes the distance between the LED diodes. But um, on film and TV you might be increasing that by eight times, uh, so eight times more pixels in the same uh, like square inch, that type of thing. So what you end up with is basically kind of like the difference between sd and hd way back in the day where you'll be looking from the same distance um but you'll just see it being much smoother um uh really the illusion of curves and everything um is maintained and so like uh what we've basically been looking at right now is about 1.5 millimeter pitch for these leds they are built up like legos so you know you build them um one, one row and then you build this next row and then you build the next row until it's up to the size that you need. Um, so we generally, um, the most common size that we're working at is about 24 by 10 feet or 24 by 12 feet for a screen. And then the largest that we've done um, for a commercial production is about 45 feet by 16 feet. And that that's was for night flyers. That's, huge. That's, the whole side, the, that's the whole side of a soundstage. Like an entire side of a soundstage is filled with a virtual world. And then that way you have the flexibility to put the sets and put the actors kind of anywhere in the stage and know that you're going to have that amazing backdrop. Do,
1: do you have a, do you, did you do a ceiling as well? Because I remember in Mandalorian they actually have that. They have, it's like a dome almost. Mm-hmm.
0: So we, we, didn't, um, we didn't do a ceiling um, with LED panels. However, there was a full production uh, lighting grid up there where they were able to uh, coordinate with the action on the screen uh, to make sure it's that the, you know, the lighting the is coordinated. And that was done by hand. I think now uh, – because that was way back in um, – uh, was that 2017? Something like that.
1: Way so, back. Ooh, way back. Ooh, way
0: back <laughs> in 2017. Pre. Trust me.
1: Every- I wish I was back in 2017. We're in 2020 <laughs> yeah, <that's> currently.
0: Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um So uh, I think if we were to do it now, it would be um, there would be some automation. There would be some DMX controlled lighting uh, Mm -hmm. that would coordinate with the with the system, and um, we might be doing some interesting stuff with that very soon. And and so that's um, that's generally the screen sizes that we're working at. We have uh, worked with rear projection as well. Uh, Barco um, and Christie make some amazing projectors that I think would be suitable, perfectly suitable for film and TV. So it just requires. Uh, you know, to be frank, I like a better DP. You have to just be a DP that knows how to use rear projection. Um, but you can get some really amazing looks. And one of the benefits uh is it's um it doesn't have the Moire and pixelation the way that you uh, perceive on LED screens. So it can be really good for some scenarios.
1: So so and that would be and then you could actually get a much larger screen with a projector as opposed to LEDs. Easier. Or not? Oh, yeah.
0: So for, for people that want to get into these types of virtual backdrops and virtual production using LED or rear projection, um, rear projection can be a, a good first step. You can play around um, on rear projection without too much cost. Um, and, but I, I also recommend just playing around on a TV um, because that can be you can get some really large TVs and get some shots that look really good and just start learning about the technology. Um, so we actually sell we do sell a product that's specifically for that. It's called ARFX Home Studio. Uh, it's made for creators that were stuck at home. So basically for myself. Um, and actually, uh, we originally conceived the product because I would have to do the demos here at home, at my home on my TV. And a lot of filmmakers were like, you know, it's great to have a big LED setup. Can I get that—the exact thing that you are showing me right now on your TV? That would be amazing just to learn. Um, so we did come out with a with a product specifically for that. If people are interested, um, and yeah. what—and
1: the cost of that is—I mean, you're saying right now the price is around ten grand. If I saw your website correctly, right?
0: Yeah. 9,500 is what we're asking for AirFX Home Studio. That comes with the workstation itself, as well as all the tracking. You additionally get technical support, knowledge base, video tutorials, uh, and, you know, uh, get to uh, our expertise uh, to support your projects. Uh, It also comes with a launch scene pack of about 100 backdrops. There's really everything that somebody would need to get started in this space. (laughs) And that's going to connect perfectly to your TV and your existing camera.
1: So let's talk about the backdrops because that's the one thing that uh, – this all sounds fantastic. But unless you're a guy or, or a gal who knows how to render out real-time, like how is the backdrop – how is the creation of the backdrops work? How can you create customs? Can you go out and shoot footage and put it on there? Does that work? Like how is, how, explain that process, What like the actual creation of the backdrop.
0: Sure. It's definitely the part of the process that still needs work. Like this is not a perfect uh, method the way that it's been done right now. And basically, the way that that method is, is you build up the actual geometry of the scene, either in Maya or 3D Studio Max, Blender, whatever the case may be. Then you bring it into Unreal Engine, and at that point, you need to apply um, real-time uh, materials uh, um, and shaders.
1: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
0: And that type of stuff, lighting, specific types of lighting materials and shaders to the elements. And then at that point, you're ready to shoot um, and you can use the, the backdrop. So it's, it's, uh, it's taken visual effects, folks, a little bit to figure out, OK, this is how I move from my traditional post methodology to pushing everything into pre into a real time engine, which is uh, Unreal Engine is what we're currently um, working on. Uh, which is one of the top uh, uh, real-time graphics engines in existence. It's the, they're definitely the leaders in this space. And
1: and then this was uh, this was also kind of pioneered in the video game space.
0: Absolutely, and that's that's I think I think when filmmakers start to look at this real-time space and and realize they're kind of dipping their toes in the same waters as video game people, um, they they can. Uh, sometimes get intimidated because it's a different world, it's a different culture um, and everything like that. But I think once they realize this key point, it starts to become a lot easier for them. In In the video game world, this is built off of a world of, you know, uh, indie makers and people who are coming out of the culture of technology and independent technology. So these people believe in sharing. <laughs> quite a bit so whenever you for example whenever a video game company finishes a major project and it, you know it has success or a dozen or whatever and they're basically done with those assets they tend to then take every single one of the assets that they made and liquidate it onto a marketplace uh, for you so you can go and buy every single thing from the video game or you can buy the select you know uh, most in-demand things from that video game so as a filmmaker, when you come to Unreal Engine and you go to the Unreal Asset Store and you go to TurboSquid and all these other places right. where you can begin to get these assets, what you realize is I'm, you know, you're sitting on a legacy of 20-plus years of asset creation where video game creators have just been making, making, making. Put it on the marketplace. Make, make, make. Put on the marketplace, and that's been happening thousands of artists for decades. Oh, yeah. So you'll you'll be able to go and get, you know, your, you know, your Lamborghini, your, you oh, know, your forest, yeah. that type. of Your, stuff. your T Rex. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so a lot of the time, what we're doing with a client when we're when we're um, when we're you know doing a location scout, which is like a virtual location scout, we'll actually go through the Unreal Asset Store. And do like what do you want? And they will be like, okay, I want an alley. Okay, alley. We type it in, and we get you know 15 different alleys. And then we're doing basically going through the screenshots, going, does this feel right? Does that feel right? And that's actually how we're we're doing it in the moment. That's and then when amazing. we actually isn't that crazy? <laughs> and then just... when we actually need to um um like lock the specific shot, like on a you know, this is shot A, this is shot B, that type of thing. What we'll end up doing is uh, literally on a Zoom chat like this, I'll be flying through the location and they'll say, you know what, that looks pretty good. Like I like that tree right there, that type of thing. Okay, so then I'll bookmark it into our system. And then when they show up on set, that's exactly what they saw on that Zoom call. And that's generally how we're doing. Um, uh, these location scouts. Now, in the middle there, of course, we have amazing technical artists who were, you know, making everything look real as much as possible. Getting the animation done, getting the scripted events done, uh, effects and that type of stuff. So that's. Are you
1: works. are you bringing in the locations when you're bringing in these files? Are you just bringing elements in and you're putting it all together, or are you building? Like, are you getting a full blown alley with the garbage cans, with the lighting schemes? Like, what are you what are you getting exactly?
0: You're getting everything. Like either we're – either we're building off of one specific existing stock asset, which is royalty-free by the way. They're, these are all royalty-free. You can use them. You know, you could go and you could make a Disney film with them and the, technically the artist couldn't say anything. It's kind of a weird uh, reality that we live in. Right. Um, so uh, the, they come with everything generally in, inside them. Or you can um, uh, populate them with all sorts of whatever props you want. So there's full flexibility here to create the world that you want to be created.
1: Yeah, I mean I was I was doing a show for Legendary, uh, a TV show, and I we were doing so many insane visual effects. Like we did 150 visual effects a week um, for a, yeah. a full-blown show. It was insane. And the only way we could do it is we went to TurboSquid and i'm like okay we need a dune worm okay great let's get in and we just and we'd go and find them and they were all pre-built and then my vfx artist can go because if they would have to create those elements we'd never make it And and they're cheap they're not they're not super i mean i'm sure an alley or something a little bit more detailed is expensive but relatively speaking a lot cheaper than having to create it yourself
0: yeah i mean if you're just getting like a table and chair or something. You're um, probably spending like what less than thirty bucks, maybe yeah, uh, something right. like that, uh, for like a really really nice one. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting world um, once you get into into fully digital environments. And I think it's the same kind of um, thing that happens when people jumped from physical sets to green screen. What's happening now is that process of uh, you're ending up with more finalized assets now, whereas before you know you'd have to you know, you'd have to fit it into the world of your film now you can go you can find pretty much anything of any style you know change it up a little bit uh change the color or something like that and you have an asset ready to go uh, for your project so it's it's really it's a really odd time um in media right now because uh labor and creativity and artistry have been massive are getting massively undervalued because you know all this stuff is out there uh for free Um, But at the same time, as a creator, as a filmmaker, it's almost like never been a better time because Mm -hmm. you've got all this royalty free assets. You've got the actual capability to utilize those assets in your project with this, with um, our technology and similar technology. Um, So you're like, it's, it's, it's really interesting time. And what we're seeing from, from filmmakers is actually, we're getting this sentence a lot. Wow, I've always had this concept that I would never have been able to do, and now I'm going to do it. And so we're working on a couple of projects right now where these are projects where the artist, the director, you know, they wanted to do this five years ago, but it was, not a, it was not a budgetary reality. And now we're able to lower that budgetary threshold for them so that that vision that they have is actually achievable. And, and as a filmmaker, you know, when I'm moving the needle, um, like it's it's great you know it's great to make some money and and know that's awesome right but when I'm moving the the needle on what can what is actually getting greenlit that's that's amazing and two the creative vision that is actually getting executed upon that project greenlight I mean to be able to affect that in a meaningful way it's very satisfying and to me that's that's what I'm working for
1: so the, with with that was the other thing I want to talk about the the budgetary benefits of this. Is massive because a show like Mandalorian could not be made without this technology. It'd just be too expensive. It'd, it'd be like making a half of a Star Wars film every episode, which we, you got it. It's it,
0: it, like so it's impossible. It wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. Like Mandalorian plain plain plainly wouldn't have happened. And a lot of people might not realize that there was an actual live action Star Wars yeah. film Star Wars uh, series that was attempted. Not, not too long. Like maybe. Oh, they had
1: like seventy. Uh, they had seventy episodes written. I, I remember, like oh Luke, Lucas, Lucas had like seventy episodes written of that yeah. thing. He was, he was going to do it, but he just he was gonna, yeah, couldn't, but couldn't figure it out.
0: They couldn't figure out because at that point they were using green screen, and so the, just the compositing and tracking and getting everything working it's too much, um, yeah. with the beautiful animation that they, you know, were interested in getting, it just wouldn't have happened. Um, or you know, frankly, it didn't happen. And I think that they've been pushing the live action Star Wars series concept until they saw this technology, um, was accessible. And I like to say that we, we were part of actually pushing them over that edge. You know, we did a showcase at Disney for about two days where we showed everyone the viability of this technology, uh, and really pushed it over the edge. And, 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 you know, we, we've been definitely causing some trouble. Like when we come out here and like, just to be clear, not everyone is a fan of what we're doing. You can imagine whose lunch we're eating when we're coming out and saying you'd never have to hire a compositor again. you never have to hire a roto guy again, you know, that type of thing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we got all, all sorts of pushback from the visual effects folks at, you know, m- many different studios. But I think when you actually see, wait a second. We're we're not actually taking money out of someone's pocket. What we're doing is we're greenlighting a project that would have never happened. Right. Getting getting the, the getting the cost of those shots that are appropriate for our technology way way down. And you know, for those shots where visual effects is still a perfect fit, um, post visual effects is still a perfect fit. You know, they can continue to have those those uh, those shots. And there's many shots in which our technology will never be suitable. You know, flying an X-Wing down the trench um, and having those beautiful exterior shots of the X-Wing and that type of stuff. You know, there's no way that we're going to be relevant to that because there's no, you know, the live action uh, component of that is so minor. So, like, there's always going to be a place for visual effects. And the fact is, they should be working on those amazing trench run sequences. They should not be working at separating, you know, uh, actress's blonde hair from green. And that, that's
1: <laughs> you're you're <laughs> absolutely, they should yeah. be more for the, like, if you try to do this with Avengers Endgame, the final, the final battle. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, I was trying to think about when I saw this technology. I'm like, okay, how could have this been played out? Because I saw the behind the scenes of the Avengers Endgame, and it's a it's just massive green. It's just massive, massive, massive amounts of green. But I'm like, how could have this worked in that environment? And maybe you would have they could have probably dropped millions of dollars off of it if they would have structured certain shots within uh, some sort of uh, AR dome of some sort. Um, and yeah. but 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 this, those giant massive shots when you've got fifty people running, across, maybe you could, maybe you couldn't. There's still going to be some CG comping in there, but there might be a lot of a lot of time and money saved. Yeah, Would you agree?
0: absolutely. So we actually did a case study on Night Flyers. We went and um, got comparison pricing for what if these shots had been achieved through traditional yeah. green screen visual effects, uh, and what we found was pretty startling. We were looking at anywhere from a 62 to 73 percent reduction of (laughs) budget for those shots. So meaning, meaning what? So we were cutting somewhere around 400 grand off of an episode budget just by being there and accomplishing these effects and composites for them on set versus them having to capture a green then send it out to a house to work on for two Key. months, yeah. come back just to give them the flaring and the beautiful um, uh, play of light that they're getting free out of the box with our technology. This is physical photons coming out of the screen, hitting the actor's face, hitting the set, you know, the uh, and eventually bouncing into the lens as opposed to having to replicate that artificially. I mean, it's just uh, uh, for those filmmakers those DPs and directors that are looking for that look, um, it's just a much much better choice for them. So that's what we've been seeing be successful. But it's also, to be clear, this is a budgetary concern as well. Producers are liking this technology because it's saving them company moves. It's saving them post-production time. Um, they're, you know, potentially simplifying their post production down. So if you're post supervisor, you know, maybe you're working two months instead of four months. It's that's the reality that we're bringing to the table with this technology. Uh, you know, it's great to it's great to talk about, you know, bringing dreams, you know, uh, to fruition and and that type of stuff. But if the dollars and cents don't, don't make ne- sense, ne- don't make sense, then it's never going to happen. So at every moment of our of our company, we've always been, you know mindful of the fact that we're independent filmmakers and we're budget conscious. I know filmmakers like yourself who are working filmmakers, you're budget conscious as well and it goes all the way up and down the ladder. Nobody nobody is looking to to spend more than they have to. So if we can create that narrative that you know this is an opportunity for you instead of having to go chase that tax incentive which is basically what producers are doing like they're just okay we're going to you know save money go take, chase that tax incentive go to bulk area you know or wherever we have to go instead of doing that you know cut 70% of your effects budget using this technology and it's going to be suitable for you know 90% plus of the shots that you need and that's basically the narrative that that we've been pitching. With that case study, that's actually available on our website. If people are interested in going and taking a look. Just look for Knight Flyers case study on the homepage, and then um, uh, hopefully you'll see there like just how disruptive this technology is going to be. And and here's the thing: um, it's so disruptive that I think without the pandemic occurring, we still would be having, we still would be struggling to get adoption. Now that the pandemic occurred, I you know I've I've done demos for over 400 uh, filmmakers and executives in the past you know six months uh, virtual demos like me and me in my living room in front mm-hmm. of my TV um, and just uh, beginning to see those those that interest trickle in for quarter one of 2021. Yeah, it's it's going to be an exciting time for virtual production in general.
1: Coming now, up- now, do you believe because of? You know, This is a larger conversation, but I think you guys are definitely uh, an ingredient in it because because the theatrical experience and the theatrical component of the distribution pipeline is pretty much gone right now as we're currently recording this. I'm sure it will come back in one way, shape, or form in the future, but I just read an article yesterday that Disney is completely doing a reorganization, and they're completely focusing on streaming, so that means that Marvel movies – and all these big tentpole movies are going to start going straight to streaming because they just like this is the future. Uh, theatrical is not where it's at. I'm sure it still will have a component of it, of course, but it's not what it was, and it's not. It's not, I don't think it's going to go back to pre-COVID levels anytime in the near future. Studios are going to the studios are not going to be able to spend three hundred to five hundred million dollars on tentpoles anymore because the return on the investment isn't as as much there because the theatrical international theatrical components aren't nearly as big as you know before you an avengers will make two billion you know where yeah. i don't know could it make that streaming i i don't i, I don't i don't know mm-hmm. you know would i pay 30 bucks opening day to see endgame probably um and and i and i believe there's probably at least 40 or 50 million people in the world that probably would and that's a pretty good that's 1.5 billion dollars <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's 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 a, it's such a weird time because actually, what's happening is now the 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 established streamers, Amazon, Netflix, um, uh, these guys are actually having conversations with the theater owners to see like could could we fill this gap that the major studios are no longer uh, filling because they're just not generating the, and releasing the content. They just you know basically the metrics don't make sense, right? They made these projects for a pre-COVID world and they have to release it in a post-COVID world. And it's just that those those metrics are just never going to line up. So um, what and and what's happening with the streamers is they were kind of thinking more of the of those metrics uh, making sense for them. Uh, The business model that they have just fits a little bit better and they have the flexibility to go out and do a quote-unquote a minor theatrical release uh, Just to drum up some uh, some publicity for the project. So I think the way that it's trickling down to um, effects vendors and technology vendors working in entertainment like us is You know one the number of people that are looking for a budget-conscious solution has spiked like we're getting paramount you know looking for a budget conscious solution disney looking for a budget conscious solution and that's just not where you were before in fact it was the opposite if you went above a certain level in quote unquote you know industry notoriety industry status you basically don't play with anyone below a certain level correct just because you're trying to keep that you know that quality high you're trying to keep Um, the entire, uh, you know, social stratum, uh, high, um, so like, so it's, it's, it's definitely changed. And the other thing that's changed is you have a lot of people who are smart, who've been poised and waiting for a moment like this Mm -hmm. and who are now attacking and they're now, you know, they see the established players all, you know, uh, tripping and falling and stumbling and they're going, wait a second. This is my opportunity to have a conversation with that studio executive, to have a conversation with that filmmaker, to have a conversation with that talent agent that I wouldn't have been able to have prior. And a lot of the people who are being successful now are people who have experience in effects, in virtual production, um, and then also in uh, working at smaller budgets. So they're willing to have the conversation with us you know, on behalf of these major studios in a way that we wouldn't necessarily have had before, and that's been super interesting because you know these are major filmmakers who want to have these conversations who are looking to become the virtual production guy at this studio, um, and that's an exciting thing to to be hearing from filmmakers.
1: So, with your with your ARFX home studio uh, product, can independent filmmakers use this technology in their projects? If you have a two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar movie. Uh, budget and you know it's not a sci-fi extravaganza it doesn't have to be but if you have an action film or if you you know just want to create a little bit more scope in the back in the backdrop of shots um to mm-hmm. give more production value to your to your as opposed to flying to montana for the end for for that sunset you can have the montana endless sunset for twelve hours
0: uh, like they you've, did on you' got on- it
1: yeah, so can they do it, and what does it take to get that uh, to work for them?
0: Yeah, so the, so the way that we're pitching AirFX Home Studio is that this is the myth, method to learn about this new virtual production technique. However, you know, creators being creators and filmmakers being filmmakers.
1: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
0: Immediately, people are saying, you know what? I could hook this up to a rear projection uh, system. I could hook this up to an LED system and actually be able to shoot some stuff um, and get some shots out, out of the box, uh, like uh, completely composited and ready to go, looking great. Just with this AirFX Home Studio box, you know, some lighting and my camera and everything like that. I think that's that's um, obviously... The, what we want people to think because uh, at the end of the day, there is nothing special about, you know, going out to a TV That's 4k resolution and going out to a rear projection system. That's 4k resolution from the perspective of the actual system There is no difference. It's just pushing out resolution, right? Just pushing out pixels um, And doing that, you know at a, at a high frame rate that's going to be suitable for the for the camera the production so from the perspective of the system, there is no difference. Um, what we're saying basically is for ARFX Home Studio, it's a, it comes with uh, backdrops, which are preset for you. Preset backdrops, stock environments, so that if you want that forest, that temple, that apartment, that office, whatever, that's gonna go ahead and come in those scene packs for you. But if you want custom content, Or you want to have deeper technical tech rehearsal tools than our AFX professional system, this first system that we came out with, which is what we license out to major studios and that type of stuff. That's still going to be the better choice for for those professionals.
1: And what is the The cost of those?
0: Um, if you're interested in knowing about the cost of airfix professional you can reach out to us. Mm-hmm. It's actually um, uh, We have different pricing depending on different types, of, you know, it's a sliding scale depending on the project everything sure. like that uh, the other uh, uh, Reason I mentioned that is because we do actually have bundled packages with stages located here in LA so we have mm-hmm. partnered with stages here in LA that have the LED screens uh, or have um, uh, suitable setups and you can actually get uh, entire uh, bundled packages by coming to us and those, and using those stages. Uh, so that's what we've been working on during the pandemic. So Smart. We've taken, taken the opportunity to go like, you know what? These stages are having um, issues getting people in. One way that we can attract those people is having a more COVID safe, you know, social distancing safe solution. Um, so that's what that's what we've done. Um, and we're very hopeful that, that people are going to find those uh, valuable and attractive.
1: Now and and finally, are we just getting closer and closer to the Star Trek's holodeck? I mean, essentially, is this is this is essentially where we're going?
0: <laughs> it's funny. It's funny you say that because um, one of the first things that happened when we got big studio heads coming in is the studio head would say, "You know, it's great that you can track the camera. That's awesome. When is it going to track me? When is it going to track my head? You know, me as an individual, and I can actually get these illusions for you know walking around." A room. So we actually developed that, we built that, and we released it at CES just earlier this year, beginning of the year prior to the pandemic, and we won best AR experience for that product. It's called AR Wall Interactive. Very creative name, as you can mm-hmm. as you can see. Um, and basically, what it is is it uses depth cameras to uh, establish a track of your head position. So it's tracking this point right in the bridge of your nose between your eyes. And then it's delivering the same window illusion that we're delivering to our camera, delivering it to you as an individual. So you walk into a room with, you know, three walls of this experience, which is some of the conversations that we're having right now. And you'll, you know, you'll be in another world. And as you move this way, that way, it's the the perspective is going to shift perfectly to your vantage point. And we're actually getting that down to the point where it's no longer perceivable the delay is no longer perceivable by the human eye. So we're talking about something that feels stuck to your head and you move around and it feels stuck to your head every every little centimeter that you move. The other interesting thing about that is since we can track your head, we can actually track your entire body, your hands, your eyes, everything. Um, so we can create situations where based on your body position, your pose or the actions that you take, the system can respond to you. So what am I talking about? Characters. That look directly into your eyes. Because remember we know the position of your head. We look directly into your eyes. We talk to you. We respond to your voice. And then we actually respond to your gestures. So if you point and you know say it's over there. And point over there. The CG character can look at where you're pointing. And react realistically. Um, using either a chatbot system or AI. Or something like that. So that's the type of really crazy stuff. That we're working in. And I'll be frank. I would love to say that you know we're definitely one of the companies that down the line, the patents that we filed, the work that we've been doing with brands and with venues, hopefully will someday lead to a holodeck type device. Not necessarily saying that we're going to be the company to do it, (laughs) because I still do think it's a little bit down the line. Maybe by the end of my life, we may have something um, like that. I don't know, 50 years, something, maybe something uh, like that. But I do definitely think that between now and then we're going to have these very interesting experiences like from the perspective of somebody who you know wasn't born with these type of technology being around it is going to seem and feel like a holiday type of experience and and just to be clear those are conversations we're having right now about like let's deploy that first quarter of 2021 let's make that happen um and i and i think the pandemic also helped push that conversation along because people can't get out and they can't have these experiences and particularly when you think about training and education mm-hmm. these are situations where you know you can't stop training people just because it's cumbersome and difficult right the people still need to be trained up so that's that's what we're seeing kind of the first uh, interest coming from that from that space so i know it's it, it's it's something that may seem distant in science fiction but that those conversations are happening now. Creating those immersive rooms, are that's those conversations are
1: happening. The funny thing is that as you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, in 50 years, this will look like SD. This will look like a silent movie uh, technology uh, comparatively to what the holodeck is. But it, it yeah. it's, it's not that far. Like you know, we're not that far. It's a stone throw. It's a it's a big stone throw away. But it is still something that's not completely astronomical to in my lifetime to see a holodeck where where you're interacting with photo-real computer generated mm-hmm. images um that look literally as per, as as crystal clear as a human being standing right next to you can you only, yeah. only imagine the kind of filmmaking that will be can you imagine where like yeah. kids will be in their in their garages with holodecks <laughs> shooting the next <laughs>
0: Avengers yeah. Endgame would look like an indie film. <laughs> exactly. And like you can imagine a world where you put up the Holodeck like wallpaper, right? You put up the st- the screen like wallpaper, you're just like gaining it on, yeah, yeah, rolling yeah. it on and that type of thing. And then it all self-coordinates, you know, goes, "Okay, this is, you know, what position I am in the world and everything like that." Like it's not that it's not that difficult to imagine it. Like I think the technology exists right now what doesn't exist right now? Is the will and the actual use case that would demand that investment to get there, right? That's that's what we're working on, and we're trying to find those partners. And it's folks in location-based entertainment, it's folks in training and education, it's also folks in the defense industry. We're having some conversations. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can imagine. Well. So so there's all sorts of uh, use cases for that, but you know. Until we find that perfect one, it's 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 not going to happen. So the, that's that's what our job is as a company and as a business, right? To talk, to have conversations with these decision makers and go, what is actually going to get the money to flow, and what are the, what are the requirements that we can hit that we can hit now. They're going to get that money to flow and actually make investment happen. So that's that's really my work as a CEO is helping uh, uh, folks see that. I've been successful in doing that in filmmaking. Now with this technology, uh, with Airwall Interactive going out of filmmaking, out of media, out into the rest of the world, I'm having very interesting conversations where they're you know they're aware of Mandalorian, they're aware of the work that's been happening because this is something that broke out even just of the entertainment community. Um, so, so we're having conversations where that amazing work that has been done in film and TV is actually moving the ball in other industries because they're like, you know what? Jon Favreau did it. <laughs> Maybe that'll <laughs> work for our thing, too. It's a it, it's a really weird time.
1: And, and I think the pandemic has supercharged all of this. I mean, this is all something that would have happened eventually. Like we would have all eventually gone to more streaming than theatrical. The, the writing was on the wall uh all this technology it would still be moving forward i think it just sped it up probably a few years uh in 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 time frame where it, yeah. it would have been so it, it is it is what it is in regards to what we're dealing with with the pandemic but there is um some benefits uh, mm-hmm. Because people are for like Zoom, like now everybody. I, I don't know if you've been driving around LA. Traffic's fantastic. Like this is mm-hmm. this is like it's like this is a wonderful place to live now. Like all of a sudden, like I drove to Santa Monica last weekend. It took me thirty five minutes. Oh yeah, I live in the valley. That's an hour and a half normally.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because We're everyone's working too. at home. Exactly. We're almost back to the clueless days where, you know, I think the famous line from clueless is everywhere in L.A. is 20, 20 minutes. minutes
1: away. Yes. Right.
0: <laughs> and we're like, yes. we're almost there. We're getting under 40, yeah. under 40 minutes. So we're we're going to get there sometime. Yeah, I agree with you.
1: So, um, Renee, I appreciate you being on the show, man. I want to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests. Uh, what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Besides, obviously, buying an AR Wall um, uh, FX Studio Home Studio. <laughs>
0: Buy an AR FX Home Studio. No, I think. Um, I mean, I think my real answer probably tracks with that pretty well, which is, um, you know, I think I think anybody can see that the, the media entertainment industry is undergoing a transition right now, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that transition. You don't want to be in, of the mentality. Of, you know, I'm going to be making half a billion dollar movies and we're going to be putting out in theaters and everybody, you know, we're going to put money in our ears and, you know, <laughs> stream and, you know, that's that and that's what filmmaking is going to be. I think it's shifted. And I think that a successful filmmaker now is somebody who understands their audience understands who's coming to their films listens to those people and doesn't listen to anybody else because that's that's the reality uh, right now in order to be a successful creator you've got to be selective about who you're listening to I think that's the big one right now you know a, a project that is that is successful is gonna work on Hulu isn't necessarily gonna be successful and work on Disney Plus and that's just a weird reality that we live in um, right now, that these are siloed audiences happening. So I think the idea of mainstream filmmaking as a whole has fundamentally collapsed and, mm-hmm. and changed. I don't think that when, when you think of a mainstream film, we, we're probably thinking of the you know Avengers uh, Endgame or that type of thing. And I think moving forward, it's going to be a different type of film that we're probably thinking about. And to be frank, it's probably not even going to be a film. It's probably going to be a TV show. A TV series, a limited series, or something like that. Raised by Wolves, I think, is a really good example. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching that. On I haven't
1: seen Max. it yet, but I, yeah, it's on my list. Yeah, with Ridley Scott.
0: That's a really good example because it's almost it's it's a post Ridley Scott film. You know, it's it's pitched as a Ridley Scott universe, but in re- reality, you know, it's a TV show. And Ridley Scott's uh, projects are films uh, traditionally. Uh, so it's a, in my opinion. It's somebody who looked at the model that Ridley Scott had has mastered and has really, you know, gone out of his way to nail, and then taking that and transplanting that into this, you know, post-transition world that we live in, and that's, a, I think, a good project for people to think about uh, moving forward. How it takes traditional, familiar, symbology, story structure, and just does it in a different way. And I think that's what successful filmmaking is going to be like in the future. And so, technology is a big component of that. You know, virtual production—I th- I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> so, in this, in the same way that you know, you and I were, you know, I think saw success in moving into digital uh, video as a as a as a creative um, a tool for us, as a crucial creative tool for us, uh, and long uh, linear editing as well. I think that same um, uh, virtual production is going to be that same tool of empowerment for filmmakers who are coming up right now like if you're if you graduate if you just graduated from film school and you want to get a job in hollywood go and make a project on a rail engine go oh, and make a little sh- one absolutely. minute thing mm-hmm. on a real engine Can then email me i will freaking hire you because there's so few people that have both filmmaking experience and Unreal Engine experience. It's just not something that people are looking at right now. And I think that those, for those who do, it's going to be very successful.
1: And what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life?
0: Um, <laughs> this, is, this is something um, – this is something definitely something that took me a long time to learn – um, I, I, was born and raised in Silicon Valley and we, uh, you know, we're a bunch of tech heads in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley where, you know, we, we all think that we're smarter than everyone else basically is what is, you know, the nice way to say it. And, um, and I think coming out of that culture, coming to LA and, and really dealing with people in a wide span of industries, you see just how empowering Technology is to people but also how intimidating it can be to people so I think the when I would I the thing that took me the longest to learn is You have to be patient and you have to be forgiving for people's um, familiarity and knowledge with technology and You if you can be that person that takes a difficult technological process and task and makes that easy for someone to understand or use or analyze or, or, or whatever, that's a friend and a partner and a collaborator that you're going to have for a long time. But if you're the type of person that goes, they don't get the tech, screw them, you know, they're dumb, they're stupid, they're they're you know, old-fashioned, they don't get it, then all of a sudden you become part of the problem because that person sees you as an obstacle or or, or something. So that that's the thing that took me the longest to learn. Being good at technology and being a master at your tools is a way for you to bring people up. It's a way for you to bring people That's up. Right. It's not a division between you and the other person. It's not, it's not we're over here, we know tech, and we know everything, and you guys don't. Because at the end of the day, no, the reason that that person hasn't learned the tech is because they've been busting their ass mastering some other part of the creative process, some other part of the of the business process. And they're masters at that. And you're master at this and they're master at that. And together you can make some magic and you can make something happen that never would have been possible before. That's how I created this company, AR wall This is a multidisciplinary, multifaceted company. Not everyone in the company is a full tech head. Some people are more creative, some people they're artists, some people are their business people. And being able to get all these people in the room talking to each other respectfully and coming up with solutions that are going to be helpful to the entire industry is so amazing. It's such an amazing experience to have. I wish I would have done it at every prior company that I that I <laughs> founded. I founded three companies prior to this and I definitely didn't think that way. I, I you know I wanted it to be, you know, birds of a feather all all together. Sure um, sure. And, and it just doesn't work that way. You need people who think differently from you. And I think that's the thing that took me the longest to learn.
1: And finally, what are three of your favorite films of all time?
0: Okay, three favorite films. Um, so Vertigo and Shining, The Shining are <laughs> usually at the top. Um, Vertigo for me is just uh, it's the quintessential film. Uh, just the, the analysis of subjectivity um, and uh, just the delusion of – trying to recreate a moment from the past. I think that's exactly what cinema is all about. Um, And then The Shining is just a terrifying film. Um, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those films that really got me. Cause I, uh, I first saw it. I was about the same age as Danny. So it's just like,
1: just Why terrifying. Why you watching <laughs> that movie at that Like age? I
0: said, my dad was really into cinema and I should, was watching stuff. I probably shouldn't have been watching at a young age. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's shiny for sure. And then I, I guess for the third one, I got to put Dune in there just because it, it did, it did, uh, was the catalyst for, for me going into film and just, just surged my ima- uh, imagination, um, as a kid, Uh, just thinking about that universe and what was possible in filmmaking. Um, So I'm like, obviously really looking forward to the uh, the new Dune coming out uh, in
1: 2025. Now, apparently they're pushing it back.
0: I did have a mini heart attack when that got delayed a full year. Um Jeez. but yeah, I'm really looking forward I'm really really looking forward to that project.
1: and that and that's a perfect example. You said something so interesting earlier. You said like this was a movie made pre-COVID trying to release in post-COVID and the numbers don't make sense. That's why James Bond is having such a difficult time. That's why the the Marv, Wonder Woman and and Black Widow and all these movies that were made prior they just don't this this business model doesn't make sense. Like and the studios have no idea what to do so um i get it i get they're gonna hold it like look we'll just put it on the shelf for a year and see what happens i get it it sucks i look. Like, i want to see all these movies it sucks i want it now i want no um, don't you know so somebody weird. you could get a, a little a quick screener somewhere don't you know people
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean they they probably got that they got that under guard you know un, oh in the vault. no no way anyone's gonna get their hands on that if they did could you imagine i mean just just like just like uh-huh. crumbling.
1: Yeah. I well, remember when Wolverine, the Wolverine got released early, yeah. a week, like a week early. Oh God. That sure. was brutal. That was brutal. Um, and where can people find you and the good work you're doing over at AR, AR wall? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
0: Yeah. So if you're interested in uh, reaching out to us, you can email us at hello at arwall.co or you can go to our website that's arwall.co and on our website you can find more information about the products that we sell as well as airfx home studio our newest product which was released during the pandemic for creators at home
1: renee man thank you so much this has been an epic conversation uh, i want i just wanted to keep asking you questions and questions because i'm fascinated by this new technology and i do think it is going to be the future um, is a very big component of the future of filmmaking, especially post-COVID. So I truly appreciate you coming on the show and continue doing the good work you're doing over at AOL, man. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it.
1: I want to thank Renee for coming on the show and dropping those virtual production knowledge bombs on The Tribe today. Thank you again so much, guys. If you want to get access... To anything we spoke about in this episode, including links to AR Wall, AR Wall's home studio, and my recent article on virtual production, just head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 414. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there.